Welcome to the Brownstoner Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Schnepps, publisher of Brownstoner. My guest today is Dorian Lamb, who's a principal and executive vice president with Cornerstone Land Abstract. Cornerstone Land Abstract is a boutique title insurance company located in New York City. Welcome, Dorian. Great to have you on the show. How are you doing, Josh? Thank you for having me. I look forward to being part of the Brownstoner Podcast. Yeah, like we were saying, we know each other for many years, and it's great to reconnect with you. Yeah. So let's hop right in. Your specialty is providing title insurance and closing services for both residential and commercial real estate deals so that they can close quickly and smoothly. So why don't we start off by just sharing how you got into the business? Yeah. Look, title insurance is not anything you ever really think about charting a direct path to. So like many in our industry, I kind of, you know, went with the flow as far as just how my career played out. So I'm a born and raised New Yorker. I went to NYU for business and was a trained management consultant. And I ended up working for one of the big three at the time. Mm -hmm. And we ended up working on a project for a company that was acquired by a publicly traded Fortune 500 largest at the time and oldest title company. And that was my foray into title insurance. And really, the first end of it, which was, I would say, 10 years, now that I reflect upon it, that was really in the back office, being a management consultant, being a project manager, helping to create the product. Mm. And after all that time, I really didn't understand what and how it was being sold. That is title insurance per, mm -hmm. you know, directly, right? I had the chance to understand how the front office worked because I had the opportunity to join an agency that was formed by, at the time, one of the biggest producers in the industry. And he really took me under his wings and taught me how to develop business. And we just spoke about this about eight or nine years, which is around the time that you and I met. Yeah. So naturally, you know, completely different animals with back and front office. I had to really understand real estate. So it forced me to study real estate, understand its players, understand the role that title insurance played in it. And then in doing that, I had the opportunity to meet many of its major players and, and you know, especially here locally in New York. So after a few years, that platform was sold to another Fortune 500 company. It was an insurance company. Mm -hmm. And soon after that, having a couple of acquisitions under my wings, I had the opportunity to join Cornerstone Land as a partner and principal in helping to grow its platform. And here we are today. It's a full shop. We handle both residential and complex commercial deals. That's terrific. Well, you have a unique experience in that you started something from the ground up and having that mentor in your career, which I think is important in every career. Yeah, super valuable. Mentors, especially. And really understanding that in every escalation or progress of your career, that there's always learning. And in this opportunity, Managing consultant in IT was my background and real estate was something that was extremely foreign to me. So it was really learning who its players were. Who was I talking to? Was it a bank? Was it a developer? Was it a GC? Was it an operator? And understanding where they fit into the bigger puzzle of the real estate life cycle. What would you say are some typical title issues that could arise in a real estate transaction? How have you helped your clients navigate those? For this part of the question, I'll speak to it from a residential and commercial Mm -hmm. uh, side. I could speak to it from either. In general, the things that come up the most are 
things like boundary disputes, whether or not a fence encroaches on a piece of property that you're buying, mm-hmm. or whether or not after a number of years that you didn't realize that there was a shed that was built that was actually on your property. And when the next buyer comes or when you refinance your property, these are things that you know, need to be worked out. So things like boundary disputes, errors in property deeds, we hear a lot about fraud nowadays. And that's something that can come up where somebody famously, there was a very large commercial deal about three years ago. I'm talking about 20 plus billion dollars worth of you know, hotels that famously there was a, a deed that was recorded against one of those properties that affected the chain of title, which meant that whoever was buying it needed to solve it. It ended up being fraud, a fraudulent deed on a commercial property of that size. Think about that and that it could still be done. So errors in property deeds, errors in where documents are recorded, whether or not, and this is especially in commercial deals, there are liens filed on the property. So naturally, some of the contractors out there, their recourse for either disputes with regards to being paid or just disputes in general is to file a mechanics lien against a property. And that could really impinge the ability for somebody to sell their property because no one's going to take it with that lien. So that needs to be settled. That's very common in the commercial world, especially here in New York City. And then you also have liens from the perspective of in the residential homes from taxing authorities or taxing entities. So if you don't pay your property taxes, recourse, depending on the area that you're in, because New York City just removed it, but there are situations in which the taxing entity can put a lien on your property. Or let's say you took private money on your deal and you fall behind in payments with regards to that private lender, they could put a lien on the property with regards to that. So there's a whole slew of them. I wouldn't want to get too technical on this, but you know, those are some of the common ones that we see in terms of what arises when we run a title report. And our role in it is really to cure it, right? A lot of these things need to be cured to move forward in the transaction. So at the end of the day, it sounds like you're just protecting both the buyer and the seller to make sure it's a smooth transaction. Yeah. One thing that is unique about title insurance is that we are insuring really the past, right? There's a stigma in our industry. We often get told, I don't really need you because there's never a claim. And I always say, well, if you want a claim from a title insurance perspective, then you should use a really bad title company, right? And obviously I'm joking there, but you know, one of the things that works for us and against us is that we have a set of facts that we're working on that we discovered and we're actively working on curing it. And that is what we're insuring. All other insurance that we know ensures the future, which as you know, you just can't predict. The claim rates are obviously going to be higher in a situation where you don't have all information. In the case of title insurance, you're doing research, you're gathering 95%, 99% of the information that's out there and, you know, actively curing it. Well, besides working with a great title insurance company, what would be your best advice to a potential developer that might be looking to acquire a property to develop about really what due diligence they should be doing? We actually, at some point in time, consider us a developer's title company. So I like that you brought up developers. The number one piece of advice that I always give to all developers is engage with your title company a lot earlier than most are. So most of the time, developers are engaging with their title company. I always use this analogy or metaphor where if there were 12 steps in a real estate transaction, title insurance is coming in at step 11, which is when you sign the contract, you get the attorney to start getting the wheels spinning on a closing and the attorney orders title. Now, that is way too late in the game. Why? 
we see a lot of times where things come up that surprise a buyer or owner. And we have seen times where the things that come up make them turn sour on the deal and step away from it. So our thinking has always been, why are we waiting till step 11? Engage much earlier on with your title company, step two or three, when you're looking at the site and doing due diligence, or when you're in negotiation, knowing that you are moving forward, include your title company in the discussions with, especially for developers, with your zoning attorneys, your architects, to go over things that can come up in a title report that can affect what you're building. Mm. So much earlier on in the process is the word of advice that I always give. We work with a lot of developers that we've actually created a report called the Cornerstone Report. So I would also say run a Cornerstone Report. You could see the information on our website, but in essence, it's a very easy, light run at what you're doing. So let's say you are window shopping. You can order a Cornerstone Report. It doesn't cost much at all, and it can kind of bring things to the surface that you can add to your due diligence and allow you to make a better decision on how you move forward. And if you discover something that maybe the seller doesn't know or is trying to hide, you can use that as a negotiating tactic. You can use that as kind of ammo or leverage in your discussions with them. So that's the thing I would recommend. Engage earlier and selfishly run a cornerstone report. No, that's great. Well, I know you're a real estate investor yourself and you help other investors by advising them on opportunities in the industry and capital fundraising options. You're also passionate about promoting physical and mental wellness in the real estate industry. You're the founder of the Real Estate Warriors, which is a networking coalition for people who value mindfulness and sweat equity. So why don't you tell us a little bit of how developers and others in real estate are, really thanks to the pandemic, changing the way that they work to make commuting easier and improve their work-life balance. It's a big question. It's a very heavy yeah. question from the perspective of the commute and COVID. Those are obviously soft or you know hot topics nowadays. And look, with regards to the commute, you know, especially here in New York, we were born and raised here. We know what that's about. I have developers have always been centric towards developing around transit hubs. And now, not that this is new, but even office developers are looking to be closer to transit hubs to make the commute as easy as possible. And then, of course, developers like the Grand Central Development or working with the community or the local groups to enhance the area. So the Long Island Railroad that's opening up there and the East End Access and Mm -hmm. just kind of building out the infrastructure so that you could get to places a lot easier. But that's not kind of the only area of impact because there's only so much you could do with the commute. And let's be frank, the commute process of it, especially if it's building out infrastructure, can take many, many years. But coming off the toes of COVID and the lockdown, A lot of the focus I see is in making sure that from a company standpoint, and this is kind of leading by example with real estate companies, is implementing a workforce wellness program, making sure that people have the ability to learn techniques to lessen anxiety or depression, or know that there is somebody there to speak with. I'm seeing more of that in the industry, which is extremely helpful. And now, of course, some of the other things that you can toggle, like compressed work weeks. We hear about Europe moving to a four-day, 36-hour work week. Are some companies going to experiment with that here locally? And you know, from the developer standpoint, to tie it back to real estate, you know, developers are always listening to figure out how they can implement that and what they're building to ease things like having a facility or an area where you can focus on workforce wellness. Or you know, having the bandwidth from the internet standpoint to you know move to a virtual environment, be flexible with scheduling. 
But I think everybody wants to take care of their employees. And I think, you know, thinking that way is important for sure. We're in a time and age that's unprecedented with regards to the fact that there are jobs out there, but many people are voluntarily resigning, you know, the big resignation. Mm-hmm. And um, companies have to do a better job at finding ways to keep, well, first attract the talent and then the, to keep it. So things like workforce wellness are extremely important. My company has really focused on and accepted the fact that you can do something with your mental fitness. It's not just about physical fitness and making sure there's a resource for them to speak about breathing techniques, speak about meditation, just speaking, right? Just communicating and having somebody that can listen to you that's a professional or working with people uh, in that manner. We just gave everybody uh, whole life insurance policies that we're paying for. So giving them the security to know that their families are protected if something were to happen. We all have to collectively figure out how to you know, bring more to the table. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to title insurance, if someone's an all cash buyer, do they need title insurance? You know, I get asked that a lot. Legally, it is not required. If you're an all cash buyer, you can decide not to purchase title insurance. But I will say that all attorneys will not let you go forward without purchasing title insurance, especially if you're buying property. And the other is that I liken it. I'm a big metaphor guy. In this case, I liken it to getting in a car and putting on your seatbelt. It's there. You just got to reach up, pull it down and click it in. And title insurance is in a way that a real estate transaction, it doesn't cost that much, right? At the end of the day, it can be 30 to 40 bips of your transaction. It's a one-time payment. It's not like all other insurance, which is you pay a yearly or annual premium. Title insurance, you pay one-time and it lasts for the duration in which you own the property. In the case of a fee policy, which is the question you had asked, which is whether or not they should not purchase it. And then in the case of a loan policy, it lasts as long as your next finance event, whether you're refinancing or whether you're just cashing out or taking out the equity in your property. But it's extremely important. And most attorneys won't allow you not to purchase it. That's good. Over the last decade or so, several dozen church-owned properties in Brooklyn have been developed for housing, both via partnerships and outright sales. What should a developer know before getting into a deal to develop a church property? Yeah, religious corporations has been um, something that has picked up in activity, especially in the leasehold scenario. And in a time and age where especially the price of dirt and land here in New York is expensive, that you got to find ways to lower your land bases. You're seeing a lot of religious corporations joint venture with developers. So from the developer side, you're seeing that they can get an opportunity to get land at a cheaper cost or basis. And then in the case of the religious corporation, you know, they're hard pressed to, to find ways to continue to fund their operations. So they have to, in some cases, pull out in some of the value of the real estate that they've owned in New York here for, in some cases, hundreds of years. Mm. But it's not as easy as just two parties that are looking to get together. Some of the things that you have to be mindful of is that from a title standpoint, the most important contribution that we bring to the table is doing something called a covenants and restrictions search, which in essence, or help you decide on whether or not you can build what you're actually looking to build. So in terms of land use, a common example of this is that there are deeds that are sometimes recorded pre-1900s. Hmm. And in the deed that's handwritten, they'll actually have covenants and restrictions to which you can build. Uh, in some cases, it only allows for you to build 
community facility. It only allows you to build more religious structures or something that the religious corporation is going to use for what they're doing and what their mission is. So from a title standpoint, you have to do an in-depth covenants and restrictions search so that you can figure out whether or not there's anything that can impede the use of the property that you're getting into a joint venture with. From the standpoint of you know, advice to the developer, you got to know that the group that you're partnering with has a real estate team. And that's important because it's a religious corporation. They're more into faith. And when you're getting into a situation where you're going to develop land, you got to make sure that they've engaged with somebody to, you know, at least have done an appraisal so that you can figure out what value there is in that potential joint venture and how to negotiate through that. Does the religious corporation have a clear mission and business plan with regards to a joint venture with a developer? What are they looking to accomplish? Are they really looking to help the community and build affordable housing, right? Or are they looking to move somewhere else and temporarily and let the developer kind of build what they want? These are the things that is important for a developer to know that the religious corporation has done at least that part of it because it will save a lot of time. These generally take a lot of time, right? So the other side of it is, for religious corporations that they have to be mindful of is that a lot of what they want to do here needs approval. They got to get approval from the AG. They have to get approval from the courts. In some cases, you got to get the approval from the local community board. Mm-hmm. So have they engaged with them? Have they began that discussion? Because the most valuable thing is time. Are we looking at a joint venture that can produce something that's going to take most developers want between three and five years? Or is this really kind of five to eight years out and how attractive does it become when you factor that in? And some of the other things are, you know, is it a landmark? What type of things you have to add to your due diligence to make sure that it's a project that's viable? Yeah, these are all great insights. What about new construction? What are some typical title issues that could come up and how would you advise your clients to work around those? I'll start from the developer standpoint and, you know, they go through the whole process and they do their sellouts. But very similar, covenants and restrictions is a search that every developer should be doing in the site that they're looking at. There could be restrictions in terms of use, but more now to reveal things like whether or not there's shared easements. Is there a shared fire escape that you have to be mindful of? Are there, is there a shared sewer easement that you have to be mindful of with the neighbor next to you? This is really important. Light and air easements, right? Mm-hmm. Are you restricted to the, the height that you can even build because someone in the block very astutely went to his neighbors 50 years ago and wants to ensure that his building is always going to be the highest or at least has the best views. And now all the surrounding buildings have agreed that you can't build past theirs or that there's a specific, you know, six level restriction where, all right, developer buys a piece of land and then now finds out he can't build more than six floors. Mm. He's not going to move forward with that deal, obviously, right? Especially here in New York. So light and air easements. But ultimately, the message is always going back to a couple of questions ago, which is, you know, engage your title company earlier. Yes, you have your land use attorney, your zoning attorneys, your architects that are going to have the ability to pull out some of these things. But it is helpful to have the title person in the room because every once in a while, you're going to come across a document that's handwritten from 1895. And, you know, we're going to have the experts that can read through it and then tell you whether or not it's something you need to worry about. And then if it is something you need to worry about. We can have our discussions with our underwriters and begin to make some arguments that this is not anything from a risk perspective that you should be overly concerned with and give the developer what they ultimately want in the title insurance policy. Now, in the case of condos, when the developer has completed the build and now is ready to sell and you have a home buyer coming in buying a condo in Manhattan, one thing they need to be mindful of on new developments is mechanics liens, right? This is a Mm -hmm. common thing where 
at the end of a project, sometimes there's disputes and sometimes people don't feel that they've got their fair share. Or in some cases, they didn't get their fair share and they follow mechanics lean on the building itself. It's something you got to worry about from a purchaser perspective, because if they were to ever win their case or if, you know it becomes an extended one, that it can impact your ownership in the condo unit that you're buying. Sure. Well, I think my last question for you is on cryptocurrency. I feel like everything these days is being purchased with crypto. Is it legal to purchase property with cryptocurrency? And have you been involved in any deals that have involved crypto? I'll first start with answering your question directly, which is that it is not illegal to buy with cryptocurrency, but it becomes particular because things like transfer tax and mansion tax that you would pay to the local authority, whether it be the city or the state, obviously will not accept crypto. So there's some other things that you have to put in place to accomplish a deal. Look, ultimately, it's going to be cash that's passing hands from the perspective of how you pay your vendors, how you pay the city and state. But between the parties, there's obviously you can exchange crypto and have an agreement in between with regards to the value and to you know what value you're buying it at. Um, now, have we done it before? We've advised many of our developers in terms of how to get it done. We have not been part of it yet, but it's something that is not illegal. It is something that we're asked quite often, and it is something that is possible. It's just, you know, with the values of crypto going down recently, it's not as talked about as it was just even six to eight months ago. Yeah, sure. Well, Dory, it was great to reconnect with you, and this was uh, very insightful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Josh, thank you again for having me on it. It's great to see you. Just some quick follow-ups in terms of where people can find me. You know, I'm at cornerstonelandabstract.com. I've got my own website as well, dorianlam.com. We are on all the social media outlets that are out there, especially LinkedIn and Facebook. And, you know, look out for it. I have a white paper that's being published called uh, Defending the Deal. And if you'd like to see it, just find me in one of those areas. Love the name. Thanks, Josh. Tune into the Brownstoner podcast at brownstoner.com. 